Podcasting from Oregon in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, welcome to Eye on Global Politics. Sit back, relax, and get ready to explore some of today's most pressing international issues. Now, here is your host, international relations scholar, author, and founder of the International Law Education Group, Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. Freedom of conscience has progressively become to be seen as unfamiliar in the modern world. Why? Because the dominant idea is that Western societies are supposed to be secular and the origins of freedom of conscience were religiously based. The classical rationales, in particular the dual jurisdiction rationale, such as giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, can be viewed as inadmissible. Advocates of freedom of conscience may attempt to substitute classical rationales, the competency, voluntariness, futility, and dual jurisdiction rationales with more conventional, secular ones. But in the course of that effort, they may be denaturing the concept. One such approach has been to tie freedom of conscience to the contemporary pervasive commitment to personal autonomy that I control myself. As a constitutional value, welcome to episode seven, freedom of conscience and the issue of autonomy and equality. I'm your host, Paul F. J. Aranyas. As stated in my last episode, I recommend the book, Religion and Human Rights, an introduction, edited by John Witt Jr. and M. Christian Green as an introductory text to which I'll be referring during relevant podcasts. I want to acknowledge Stephen D. Smith's chapter on freedom of conscience, which I've utilized in this episode. If you remember the conscience tautology from episode five, that a person should do what he believes to be right is the same as saying a person should do what he believes he should do. If one changes the emphasis from right to he, what he thinks he should do, this amounts to the idea of thinking for oneself, to make one's own decision. However, this change affects the notion of personal autonomy, transforming it and playing down the obligation to freedom of conscience. Freedom of conscience relied exactly on the conviction that individuals are not autonomous, but rather are obligated by a higher personal power called God. That conviction was what warranted unique respect for people who were acting not just from the usual routine motives and by no means as autonomous agents, but solely from conscience. Martin Luther didn't say, I choose to stand, but rather, I can do no other. Assimilating conscience into autonomy inverts conscience and robs it of its justification for special respect. The challenge to freedom of conscience presented by public secularism is intensified by the commitment to equality, which has evolved into perhaps the most potent theme of modern political and constitutional thought. 
Proponents of free exercise exemptions emphasize the inconsistency between equality and freedom of conscience. For example, if a non-religious objector to military service would not be exempted, why then a religious objector? Why the unique treatment? It is more potent rhetorically than analytically. As law professor Peter Weston has famously stated, equality means that like cases should be treated alike or that similarly situated people should be treated similarly. If this is a good reason for regarding the exercise of religion as a special constitutional commitment, then it would appear to follow that people motivated by religious conviction are not similarly situated to people who act from other motives of different constitutional status. Hence the argument that exempting religious people but not secular people offends equality begs the essential question. Nevertheless, as a rhetorical matter, it has been effective. The interactions of equality or the equivalent religious neutrality, where the government is neutral toward religion, freedom of conscience can be complicated when regulations involve exemptions to avoid encumbering some people on secular grounds. Equality can also substantiate the same argument that religious objections must be accommodated. This was seen in the case involving Muslim officers and beards at the Newark Police Department mentioned in the last episode. Initially, it can work both ways and expand freedom of conscience to secular and religious areas. However, this expansion can result in the concept becoming disjointed and unstable when applied apparent during the 1960s Vietnam War era when the United States Supreme Court, prompted by considerations relating to equality and neutrality, chose to interpret the draft law exemptions as including secular and religious objectors. Fundamentally, the court expanded the exemptions to cover anyone with a sincere, reflective, moral objection to war. At the same time the court reported to honor the statutory language, it rejected exemptions to men whose objections were based on essentially political, sociological, or philosophical views, or a merely personal moral code. That denial no doubt indicated the difficult reality that in many situations, it would just not be practical to excuse anyone who has a political, sociological, philosophical, or personal moral disagreement from complying with general legal obligations. To do that, as the court has noted elsewhere, would be courting anarchy. In the cases related to the compulsory draft laws, the court having effectively rejected Congress's decision to limit exemptions to theistic pacifists, the court was unable to provide any coherent distinction between the categories of objectors granted and those denied exemptions. The goal of religious equality or neutrality resulted in the court significantly widening the area of protected conscience. However, in the process it caused the law to be less coherent and more fragile. Had the war and the draft persisted, and had the court proceeded in exempting all sincere moral objectors, the expanded exemption might have become, for all intents and purposes, both politically and practically unsustainable.
The expansion of freedom of conscience in the cases related to the draft may have signaled later limitation on free exercise rights in the Peyote case referred to in Episode 6. Influenced by notion of equality, many academic theorists and some jurists have progressively come to oppose free exercise exemptions based on religious beliefs or to merge such obligations into other more contemporary, respectable commitments, such as equality or freedom of speech. The displacement of freedom of conscience by the notion of equality, however, may not be permanent. Freedom of conscience still enjoys wide support, especially in the United States. This was seen in the reaction of the U.S. Congress to the decision in the Peyote case, which reflected a tradition of commitment to the freedom of conscience. The classical religious rationales are still highly influential and hold sway in everyday settings, even though they may be inadmissible in official settings. Therefore, while freedom of conscience may seem to be besieged, it is certainly not defeated. Its fate remains undetermined. What will be the ultimate fate of freedom of conscience? The concept has played a central role in bringing about religious tolerance and contemporary understandings of human rights and liberalism. But has it accomplished its aim in liberal Western societies? Some would say that if the classical religious rationales are no longer officially applicable and that other concepts like freedom of speech and equality have filled the gap, then it is time to thank freedom of conscience for its noble work and bid it a gracious farewell. Nevertheless, others would disagree and say, as discussed in the opening of episode 5, that conscience is essential to humanity and that figures like Locke and Madison who uplifted freedom of conscience, were not only advancing a transitory phase in the progression of political and constitutional thinking, they may have been elaborating on a notion that is irreplaceable, enduring, and essential to human beings and humanity. In this case, a progressive termination of freedom of conscience would represent a tragic and lamentable deprivation. Freedom of conscience and the classical religious rationales, I would assert, are still needed. Contemporary liberal societies no longer impose orthodoxy, like the old confessional state in which the government dictated the religion of the people. Contemporary societies are tolerant, at least according to their own self-perception, and describe themselves in terms of religious neutrality and equality. Notwithstanding, these modern liberal states still play a direct role in the thinking of their citizens, from public school curricula to university programs to regulating hate speech and hate crimes. On one hand, because modern correctness is not based on a reference to a higher power or sacred truth, it may diminish the possibilities of religious oppression. On the other hand, it may increase religious discrimination because it has eliminated any objective reference to a higher power for which the state can be judged and criticized. A state or civil society so self-assured of its open-mindedness and tolerance, much like a person who is supremely self-confident, may blind itself to its own parochialism and possible transgressions. Freedom of conscience may be exactly what is needed to be 
on guard against overreach and abuse by the state. The Manhattan Declaration, mentioned in Episode 6, is an example of those resisting the diminution of freedom of conscience. The classical religious rationales may also continue to be applied in vigilance against governments and civil society, which are both fallible, even when they claim to be so self-certain. This vigilance will remind the powers at hand that good character and genuine virtue cannot be imposed and that there is an element, a belief in a higher power that transcends the state's or society's temporal jurisdictions. You've been listening to Eye on Global Politics with Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you will share our International Law Education Group web address, ileducationgroup.org, with your family, friends, and colleagues. Don't forget to check out ionglobalpolitics.com for future articles and podcasts, and to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We look forward to welcoming you to another episode of Eye on Global Politics.